The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, Fathom Church. Hey, I like that response. I'm happy already. Uh, My name is Chris. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, I'm the pastor here. Glad you're with us this morning. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you please grab it and open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, that's where we're going to start today. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can open a phone or a tablet, or there are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is on page 1008 in those uh, Bibles, but I'd love for you to see this uh, with your eyes. Actually, we're going to do some Bible work today. I'm going to ask you to turn four different places. All right, I think you're up to the task, uh, but I'm just going to warn you right now, you're going to do some work in the scriptures today, uh, so get ready for that. Uh, and I know I've said this the last couple of weeks, but uh, the way that we primarily preach here at Fathom is, is right through the Bible, right through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are going to start that in on, uh, well, actually in two more weeks, okay? So right after Labor Day, our fall sermon series begins, and we will be studying Ephesians. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, I know I keep saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it. Ephesians is going to be awesome. Okay, Ephesians is going to be excellent. 13 weeks, six chapters. I said five last week on accident, and I really appreciate your stern correction this week. All right? Sorry. All right? Goodness gracious. Uh, Six chapters, 13 weeks, and just so you're aware, a little teaser, the very beginning of Ephesians, uh, Paul gives us a run-on sentence that will challenge us immensely, and he uses a word... The word is predestination. So in two weeks, we are going to talk about predestination. Some of you know what that means. Some of you are predestined to know what that means. Um, But I just want you to know that uh, if you've ever ever wondered about the free will predestination kind of debate, we're going to tackle that and put it to bed. All right? You won't ever have any other questions about this topic after that. But for two more weeks, just so you know, we're in this little mini series called What I Learned. Uh, This summer, I was on sabbatical from being the pastor of this church, and uh, God just showed me some different things. And so I uh, wanted to take a few weeks coming back to talk about what I learned on my sabbatical. We talked about the church the first week of this series. We talked about the world last week and the different lenses by which we see the world. Um, And now today, our topic is discipleship. Discipleship. We're going to talk about uh, what I feel like God revealed to me about discipleship on my sabbatical. Because I started out uh, in May, I started in May, uh, really going on sabbatical, wanting, expecting, and asking God to do something big in my life. Like, I knew I was taking the sabbatical. I know they don't come around very often. I knew that it was going to be three months. And so I really wanted him to, to speak something to me or to, like, take me deeper in a way that he hasn't before or, like, give me a new word or a new direction or a new passion or something. Like, I wanted to have, uh, you, you, maybe you know, know the idea of, like, a mountaintop experience, right, with Jesus. I wanted to have something big. I wanted something to happen. And then like I told you two weeks ago, uh, I I really didn't have a mountaintop experience on sabbatical. It's not that sabbatical was bad. I just didn't get that. Um, And so I just want you to know, I really wanted that. Like I wanted to grow. It wasn't that I was like going in sabbatical so exhausted that I was apathetic or lazy or unmotivated. Like I really wanted a big moment, but I didn't get it. I didn't get that moment. And it got me thinking about discipleship. It made me think about 
discipleship. Like when we actually desire to be discipled, like if you have an actual desire in your heart to go deeper, to grow up, to, to be matured in your faith, and you ask God for that, the question is, how does he do it? Because it seems like sometimes we even want it and it doesn't happen or we miss it or something. So, so how, how do we mature? How does God grow us up in the faith? How does this stuff work? Well, I thought about it and meditated on it and read the scriptures, and I have three observations for us today on the idea of discipleship. We're going to start in Hebrews 12. Like I said, we're going to move through this, but Hebrews 12, we're going to start and and look at verses 1 and 2. So look at your text with me, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is Hebrews 12. This is a very famous passage. If you've been around church, you might have heard this passage before. But let me tell you where we're at in the book of Hebrews, because I think you need to know the context here. Hebrews chapter 12 uh, is giving us instructions, giving Christians instructions on how to continue the journey of discipleship, on how to continue to go deeper with Jesus, to continue to grow up and mature regardless of the circumstances around them. Okay, and the reason why I know that is because in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews gave us what's known as the hall of faith, right? We talked about this, the hall of fame kind of idea, uh, the hall of faith. And Hebrews 11 is this list of men and women throughout Bible history who are commended for their faith. They're in the hall of faith, okay? Um, And they are commended. And at the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews says uh, basically this, in this life of faith, Okay, Uh, things can go very well for you. He says that some will receive their dead back from the grave. Some had plenty. Some were made, uh, were honored and allotted and all these things. But but the, the writer also says that in this life of faith, things can go very poorly for you. Like you can have the same faith and things go very poorly. And the text says that some were sawn in two. It's graphic. But that's what the text says. Some were sawn in two, some were put in prison, some went without and and essentially had a very poor life from the worldly standpoint. So regardless of the circumstances of your life, the writer of Hebrews says, you can do this. You can follow Jesus. And on the heels of that, in chapter 12, he says, therefore, in light of all of that, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in the life of discipleship, right, in in following Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says it's like a race. The illustration is that it's a race, okay? And, And here's what's so incredible about that verse. The writer says there are two things that will encumber you in this discipleship race. He points out two things. They're separate, okay? The first thing he says is that there is sin that will keep you back. It'll hold you back. And weight. It says there's weight and sin that will hold you back in this race of following Jesus. And they're separate ideas. 
Two separate ideas. So, so I'll put it like this. There are sinful things that will jack you up on this discipleship run. There are, like if you've got sin in your life, indwelling sin, sin that you have not repented of and are trying to put to death, that will hinder you as you chase after Jesus, as you become a disciple of Christ. But there are also non-sinful things that will do the same. Things that are morally neutral that will still hinder you in the discipleship journey. And the writer of Hebrews tells us with both of those things, the sinful things and the non-sinful things, to lay them aside. Or the, 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 the Greek reads, cast them off. Throw them off. Get them off of you. That's what the point of this text is. Throw off anything and everything that would hold you back from pursuing Jesus with everything that, and, and everything that you are. So these morally neutral things, not just sins, but morally neutral things, the writer is saying you need to cast those off so that you can run this race with endurance. So it's an athletic illustration. Okay, I see you in here. You're athletes. I can see this. Okay, congratulations. Uh, it's training for a race. It's training for a race. Maybe, maybe a running race, a foot race like track and field. Maybe swimming. That's a race, right? Like a, so uh, my mind immediately goes to the Olympics. I don't know if your mind goes there. That's where mine. There are, I don't know if you have, uh, for me, there are some sports that I think about zero until every four years the Olympics come around. I mean, maybe you're not that way. For me, it is like running, gymnastics, cross-country skiing, okay, curling. Uh, love it. Love it. Once every four years. All right. Never on a random Tuesday in the middle of the summer have I been like, oh, man, I'd love to watch some curling right about now. Just, I mean, it hasn't happened. OK, uh, but but swimming. Swim, I love Olympic swimming. And yet I only care about it once every four years. Now, as far as I know, so I'm no expert, just so you know, OK, I know how to swim. YMCA, baby. OK, um, <laughs> I know how to swim. And so as far as I understand, in the Olympics, if you want to, you could race and jump into the pool looking just like me with, with denim and like a button-up shirt and boots if you want to. I don't know if there's a rule or not, but I, I would imagine if you want to, you could do that. Imagine, you know, Missy Franklin wearing denim. See how that goes, right? And Michael Phelps wearing big old clompy boots in the pool. I mean, you could imagine this. It might be legal, it might be all right. It might be fine for them to do that, but you've never seen that, okay? No, it's because a swimmer strips themselves of essentially everything. Body fat down to like zero point nothing, right? Just complete lean body. They shave every inch of their body, like naked mole rat style. They go complete, no, no hair, all right? I, I've seen swimmers with their eyebrows shaved. You seen this? This is the reason why I can't be an Olympic. It's the only reason why I'm not an Olympic swimmer, Okay. <laughs> If I'm completely honest, I just love my eyebrows that much. Decent clothing, right? I mean, I don't know if a, wearing a Speedo is a sin, but it should be, right? So, so, so they're doing all of this, though. Swimmers do all of these things because it's helpful for their objective. They don't want any drag in the pool, right? They don't want anything to slow them down. That's the, the image here in Hebrews 12. The writer is saying, as Christians, it is absolutely about you putting to death the sin, getting the things that you have to get out of your life. That's what it is. But it's also about what I can give up that's slowing me down. It's what you have to give up, and it's what you could give up 
all with the purpose of going faster in the race, of being unencumbered. So in your discipleship, are there some things, sinful things, that are still hiding out with you, that you need to cast off, that you need to repent of, that you need to put to death, as the scriptures say? And are there some non-sinful stuff that's just baggage and it's slowing you down? It's, it's hindering you from running the race to your best ability. The writer says, get rid of those things. Part of discipleship is throwing those things off. But, but then as I'm reading this, another thought struck me, okay? Because I've told you, uh, I, I run, okay? I run for like fitness. I go running and things like that. I, I always like to qualify that. I am not a runner, okay? I run. There's a difference. You know there's a difference, Right? Uh, runners can, I mean, they look down on me, okay? I run for fitness and so that I can eat more food, okay? Runners do differently than that. But, but I run, and uh, this sabbatical, I actually read a book on running, okay? So maybe I am a runner, I don't know. Uh, but I read a book on running, and this book was by a running coach who has pioneered a training method. It's called the MAF method, M-A-F, okay? The MAF method, and it's uh, somewhat controversial in the running world. It's a unique method, but this guy has trained some of the winningest uh, distance runners, ultra marathoners, triathletes in the world over and over and over. These, this guy's, whoever he coaches with this method, they just kill it on the main stage. Now, uh, I'm going to oversimplify this method for our purposes today, but in the math method, he proposes that you should train at a low heart rate. You should train at a low heart rate. Uh, In exercise, heart rates are measured into two categories. There is uh, aerobic and anaerobic. I'm I'm very wise in these things. I've read one book, okay, just so you know. But um, aerobic heart rates to my understanding, are slower heart rates that are best for long distance and endurance exercise, aerobic. While anaerobic are better for like high energy, short bursts of speed like sprinters. That's kind of anaerobic. And the math method proposes that if you almost exclusively train with your heart rate at an aerobic level, so a lower heart rate, you will actually get much faster over the long haul. And he's having some pretty convincing success with this method. Essentially, here's how I'll boil it down. You have to run slow in order to run fast. Now, this is my first observation about discipleship. Discipleship is slow, not fast. It's slow, not fast. See, I wanted God to do something fast in my life during my sabbatical. But I've been a Christian now for more than 20 years, and most of my growth has been slow. Sometimes like excruciatingly slow. Anybody feel me on this one? Like it just feels sometimes like I should be further along by now. But discipleship is slow. This is why the writer of Hebrews says to run with endurance. He doesn't say run real fast, y'all. Throw off all the things that cling to you and get on that horse. He says, no, you, 
You throw off all this stuff so you can run with endurance. You gotta run slow if you wanna run fast. I've said this before. We don't, we don't serve a microwave God who's got hot pocket dreams for your life, right? right? It's, it's more like he's a slow cooker. He's a crock pot. If that means it's gonna take time. That means it's gonna take energy. That means it's going to take marinating. It's gonna be slow. It's gonna be slow, not fast. Now, even when we really wanna grow, so let's just say you actually do want to grow in Christ, and let's just say you also recognize that this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. So you've got a genuine desire in your heart to follow Jesus, to mature in your faith, and you recognize it's gonna take a while for this to happen. Still, we often miss what God's trying to do in our lives. Like often we still fail to recognize how to be discipled in this. So I want to point this out to you using a couple of scriptures. So we're going to turn, do our our, our turn here from Hebrews. We're going to turn left to the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter four. Okay, Mark chapter four. It's the second book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark, uh, Mark chapter four in those black Bibles is on page 839. Uh, But Mark four is an interesting chapter because there's a, a number of parables in Mark chapter four. Jesus tells these stories that are meant to kind of stimulate thought of his disciples towards a certain goal. And one of these parables is actually very famous. It's kind of the prototype parable. And so I want to read this and then reflect on this. This is Mark chapter four. We're going to read verses two through eight. So look at the text. This is Jesus. And he was teaching them, his disciples, many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Verse seven, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Okay. It's the parable of the seeds or the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, depending on the translation that you read. Um, but it's a parable, okay? And uh, it's, it's, it means that there are different ways to receive God's word. That's what this parable means, that there are different ways to receive God's word. The seed is God's word, okay? The seed is God's word. Uh, the sower plants or sows the seed into different soils, And the four different soils are different people or individuals or hearts that receive that seed. Specifically, how you receive the seed is likened to different types of soil to produce a yield, okay? So I've preached this passage before out of Mark 4, um, but I want you to notice something here that was interesting to me. Four different types of soil, okay? Uh, Four different ways to receive the word. Four different results, right? Some was scorched, some grew, some grew quickly, some got choked out, like four different results. Even, uh, there, was, there were even three different yields from the good soil 
right? 30, 60, 100 fold. Lots of different kind of ways to receive God's word, but there's only one common denominator in this parable. And the one common denominator is the seed. God's word is the same. It's the seed in every single soil. See, the reason I think that most of us miss what God is doing in our lives is because it comes in a form that we're not expecting. It comes in a form that we may not be looking for or frankly even want at all. And it's my second observation about discipleship this morning. See, discipleship is most often small, not big. It's slow, not fast. And very often it's small, not big. See, we expect big, big things, impressive things. I wanted God to do something big in my heart during sabbatical. When God shows up in our lives, we expect big, monumental, life-altering change. And in some ways, that happens. That can occur. But it, it can also become disorienting when, when sometimes discipleship shows up in seed form. Okay? The work of God, and you can write this one down, the work of God is almost always smaller at the start than we expect. God almost always starts his work in our lives in smaller ways than we expect. And so we can miss out on what he's trying to do in our lives because we're expecting it not to look like a seed. Like we ask for him to gr like grow us. We ask for growth and he gives us seeds. We, we, we ask for fruit in our lives and he gives us seeds. Okay, we, we, we want to become a tree like an oak of righteousness. That's what I want to become. And God goes, that big old tree only comes from nourishment and growth from an itty bitty seed. This isn't just New Testament. This isn't just Jesus. You want to do some Old Testament? We got some time. You want to do some? Yeah? You don't have any other options, okay? Because <laughs> I have a face mic. Let's turn left. Let's take a hard left in our Bibles all the way back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, okay? We're going to go Exodus chapter 16, Genesis, Exodus, okay? Second book of the Bible. It's on page 58 in those hardback ones, okay? But Exodus 16, Exodus is a fascinating book. It's a wonderful book. If you've read it, you might remember that it's about the, the Israelites being uh, exodist, that's not a right word, but whatever, out of Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years. Moses shows up on the scene, let my people go, plagues from God. They walk on dry ground. Remember this? This is Exodus, okay? All of that that I just said happens in, in Exodus chapters 1 through 15. 1 through 15 covers the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Now they're in the desert. They're free of their slavery. And in chapter 16, the text says that people, the people of Israel, start to grumble against Moses. They start grumbling against him. Why? They got hungry. Actually, if you're grumbling, you're hangry, right? So they got hangry in the desert, they, and, and they, they, they demand bread from Moses from God. It's kind of like when you go to the Olive Garden. Okay, you've been to Olive Garden? We live in the burbs, y'all. You've been to the Olive Garden, right? It's, a, it's, it's Italian chilies, okay? 
That's what that is, okay? Uh, but, but in the Olive Garden, they seat you when you get to the Olive Garden. Waitress comes over to you and says, hey, hey, I'm Jessica. Welcome to the Olive Garden. All right, can I, can I start, can I get some drinks order for you? Do you, want, do you want to hear the specials? And you're like, whoa, 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 Jessica. Uh, thank you. Um, but I would love for you to get me a drink. I would love to hear the specials. But first, I want you to scoot back into the back. And I'd like for you to come back out with a basket full of those garlicky, buttery breadsticks. And then we can do all the things, all right? But until then, your tip depends on this. We need some bread, all right? Thank you, Jessica, right? Like, this is, I mean, when I get there, there better be bread on the table. That's, that's what's going on here in the text. They're hungry. And they complain to Moses so he goes to God, and God's going to provide them with bread from heaven, right? You know what this is called? What's it called? Manna, yeah. Or as is known in my house, Chipotle, okay? Um, <laughs> but check this out, okay? Exodus 16, look at verse 31. This is interesting. This is interesting. 1631. Now the house of Israel called its name Manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now, hold on a minute. Seed? It's like coriander seed? Now, wait on. Wait, wait, wait. God, you promised us bread. We wanted bread, and you're giving us seed? They thought it was going to be fully formed bread coming down from heaven, but what they got was not what they expected. Actually, the, let's look back, okay? Uh, look back to verse 15. So Exodus 16, verse 15. This is the first time they see this manna. Look at verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses had to tell them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, you guys are little Bible scholars, okay? So look at the words, what is it? And then in your text, notice to the right of that, there's a little number. There's a little number next to what is it? It's not a verse number, it's a, it's a footnote number. Now look down at the footnote and what does, what is it mean? What is the translation there? Manna. So in the Hebrew, Manna isn't a word for bread. Manna is a phrase. And that phrase means, what is it? God provides them with sustenance from heaven. They see it. It's like seed. And they say, what is this? What is this? It's fascinating, y'all. God, I asked you for bread, but what is this? God, I, I asked you for growth. What is this? God, I asked you for what I desired, the thing I wanted most in life. What is this? I asked you to bring me to the right school, to the right college. What is this? I asked you for the right job. What is this? Goodness, God, I asked you for a great spouse. What is this? Some of you are wondering what God is up to in your life. Some of you are wondering why you aren't growing. 
Like literally, some of you are wondering why it seems like God isn't moving in your life. But may I pose to you that maybe God's giving you seed and you're missing it because you're looking for bread. And you throw up your hands in disgust in the air and you say, what is this? And I, I just think God might say to you, hey, I gave you the seed. And you got to plant it. And you got to water it and, and you got to nourish it. And I'll make it grow. I will bring the yield. Okay, but, but, but I don't give out bread. I don't give out fruit. Okay, I don't give trees. I give seeds. I give seeds. But we want big. We want fully baked bread. But God does small, not big. Okay, one more, one more. Slow, not fast. Small, not big. One more. Last turn in your Bible, okay? Turn to the right, Galatians chapter two. Oh, this one's gonna be tricky. Right in the middle of the, the epistles. Galatians two, page 972 in those black Bibles. Galatians chapter two. Oh, I passed it. There it is, Galatians 2. Hey, g- good job on the scripture this morning. Proud of you. Really, I'm impressed. Okay, you're not, but whatever. Uh, okay, Galatians 2. Once you're saved, okay, once you become a Christian, once you are kind of in, you've given your life to the Lord, you've you know, bowed the knee to him, there will still come moments in your Christian journey where yet again, you are confronted with the reality that you're not quite what you thought you were. Like even after you become a Christian, there's just these moments where you, where you realize that you're just still kind of a mess, right? And, and it's kind of like, really? Like, is this, I, I think I'm supposed to be better than this. There are a few, actually, there are a few things in the Christian journey as painful as realizing that you aren't who you thought you were or who you think you should be. These can be very discouraging, shameful events. I call it again, I call them again moments, again moments, like you thought you were better than that or stronger than that or, or beyond that, and then you find yourself there again, just again. You ever said that stuff, right? God, I promise I'll never do that again. God, I'll never look at that stuff again. Lord, I'll never drink that much again. God, I'll never yell at her or at him like that again. I'll never do it again. Only to fall back into the exact same thing again. And then you're like, again? Are you kidding me? What's wrong with me? Anyone, anyone feel me here? Just me? I mean, I'll get off of here, okay? Is this a safe place? I, it, this can't just be me. I still have things in my life. And, and you do too. We all have compulsions that we still hate. You know why? Because point one, discipleship is slow. It's slow. Now, if you are saved, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, when you get to those again moments, you will not be there with your salvation on the line. Because that cannot be snatched from you. 
You'll not be there when you fail again, when you trip again, when you fall on your face again. You're not there with your salvation on the line, but you will be there with fullness of life on the line. The fullness of life that God promises his people when they obey his ways. That's what's on the line when you just keep falling again and again and again. And in those moments, the temptation to succumb to the shame uh, of those moments is, is ripe. To just collapse in on yourself, hide away and run from God in the shame of your failure. Uh, illustration. Okay, I, on sabbatical this summer, my family and I did a road trip, short little road trip down to the sand dunes, okay? Right outside Alamosa, did that drive, played in the sand. It's a big sandbox, okay? Just in case you're wondering. I mean, it's impressive, but it's sand. Uh, and then on the way back, uh, we drove I-25 North through Colorado Springs. Now, uh, I'm from Colorado Springs. That's where I grew up. Uh, and as I entered into Colorado Springs, driving on I-25 North through my hometown, um, I, I don't know if this happens to you when you go to your home, but I felt deep nostalgia. I'm, I, I may, I'm sometimes cripplingly nostalgic, okay? But as I pulled through Colorado Springs, I felt these pangs of nostalgia over, over things that I did 20, 25, 30 years ago. Like, like shame, almost crippling shame as I'm driving, with my daughter in the backseat and my wife next to me driving on I-25, I felt shame over things that happened two to three decades ago. I felt guilt over people that I had hurt, things that I had done, things that I hadn't done. Because you see, I, I got saved at the end of high school. I wasn't raised in the church. And so, so I can remember what happened when I first got saved. Like, I hope Mar uh, Harper, my daughter, never goes through that. Hope she never remembers when she gets, got saved. She said she got saved last year. We'll see if it sticks, okay? But, but I hope she never remembers a day where she doesn't know Jesus, but I remember. I remember clearly. Some of it I don't remember, but most of it I remember, okay? And I remember getting saved, and I remember overnight being passionate about Jesus, being excited about Jesus, being like full of this desire to grow and to follow him with everything in my life. But over, so that happened overnight. But overnight, my real life experience of change was not that drastic. It just wasn't that drastic. I was still enslaved to lust and, and pornography. Hey, the, the crew that I ran with before I got saved, we partied hard. And, and so the desire to like smoke pot and drink with them, that didn't just disappear overnight. Pride in my abilities still hanging out there. Didn't turn off as soon as I accepted Jesus as Lord. Selfishness and wanting life to go my way. It didn't just disappear Anger, sadness, fear. These are things that were deeply rooted in my heart and they didn't all just disappear when I accepted Jesus as Lord. So I'm driving north this summer recalling the person that I was in high school. And I don't know if this happened to you, but there's this insidious voice, the voice of the enemy that starts to talk to me in moments like that. It's like he speaks and whispers in my ear, telling me I'm not loved by Christ. Telling me that, that I'm not lovely in God's sight. 
how could I be lovely? How could he love me when I've broken so much? When that exit to that street to that house is where that happened. How could he love me when I've broken so much, when I've, when I've messed so much up? I heard that voice again. How come you still struggling with some of the same things you were struggling when you were running these streets? 25 years ago, how come you're still wrestling with these things? You're a pastor now. How come? And listen, some of those things that I told you in my list, those things I've found victory in. Some of them. I mean, I, I am not, praise the Lord, I'm not enslaved to pornography. But that was years of work. Years of work. I'm not jonesing for a joint. Okay, this is good news. Good news for you and for me. All right, just so you know. But pride. I mean, you ask my wife, she'll tell you the truth. That selfishness. Especially when the football game's on. That fear, that anger, that depression, these things. They've still got holds on my heart. They still rear their ugly faces. And listen, I hate it. I hate it about me. Those compulsions that are still lingering, I hate them. I want them gone. And the enemy uses those against me. And it's in that moment that I have to remember Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's the only thing that'll actually get me through that crippling nostalgia because in Galatians 2.20, we have this famous passage. I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul. The apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul, who persecuted Christians, who ordained the, the execution of Christians. Paul, the, the one who would say, I am the chief of sinners. That Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when the, when the enemy brings these, these whispers of the failures of my past, or when I'm racked with shame because I've fallen again, when, when my thoughts go to, I should be further along than this. I'm a pastor for goodness sake. What is wrong with me? The truth is, at this moment, I need to cover myself with Galatians 2.20. I need to cover myself with this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. If you are in Christ, you say that too. It's not Paul's words, it's your words. You have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. So driving north on I-25 through Colorado Springs and I hear those whispers, that Chris who took that exit and took that right turn and went to that house and did that thing, that Chris is dead. That Chris was crucified with Christ. That's what that, that's what that verse means. 
He was crucified with Christ. Every sin, past, present, and even future sins, they were all future sins when Jesus went to the cross. And and so that Chris is dead, nailed to the cross with Christ. And now I can strive all the more and more to let Christ live through me, to live by faith with him. So discipleship is slow, not fast. It's small, not big. And finally, discipleship is step by step, not all at once. You ever seen What About Bob? It's baby steps. If you haven't seen that movie, you need to see that movie. It's step by step. And I I use this illustration a hundred times, so deal with it, okay? But uh, I always use the Carfax illustration here because I think it's so helpful. Uh, See, some of us think in those kind of painful, nostalgic moments or, or, or when we get these moments of I've fallen again and I've, I'm on the floor again and I, and I just keep coming back to the same compulsion again, like we think that God has some sort of buyer's remorse around us. Like if he could go back, he would undo Jesus' work on the cross for us. We would never say that out loud, but we believe it in our hearts. Like he's up in heaven going, gosh, had I known that he was going to do that? Look at what she's doing. Angels, get over here. Do you see this? Forget this. We should rewrite time. We should rewrite history. Cancel this whole thing out. I would never have redeemed them had I known. But that's just simply not what the Bible teaches. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were at your worst. He said, that one's mine. That's who I'll send my son to die in the place of. So it's like God ran a Carfax on you. Remember Carfax? Carfax, Carfax. This, I, I said in first service, this, is, this illustration uh, has a shelf life because I don't think it exists anymore. <laughs> Bob, does Carfax exist? Nobody uses those anymore, huh? Carfax. Carfax gives you a readout of everything that happened on a vehicle. Before you buy a vehicle, you want to read the Carfax to find out if it's been an accident, if it's got issues. And so it's as if God read a Carfax on you and he saw everything that you ever did or would do. And the report came back and listen, it ain't good. Said, this car is broken. Leaks oil, rusty frame, sketchy suspension, Right? In big red letters, do not buy this car. You will be displeased, right? Like that's what it says. And God sees that, reads that, processes that, and then goes, take that. No, no, no. That's that's the car I want. I'll pay for that. And now here's where it connects to discipleship. Because hear me, he doesn't just pay the price for you and then shut you up in the garage, close the door and that's it. Nor does he snap his fingers and miraculously all of your problems are fixed and you're returned to perfection. No, what God does is he begins a full restoration process on you that will go step by step for the rest of your life. Theologically, we call this progressive sanctification. 
God sanctifying you, making you into who he meant you to be before sin ruined that progressively, step by step. So, if you are in Christ, listen, this is the truth. You aren't the wreck that you used to be. If you're one day into your journey with Christ, you're one day further down the journey of progressive sanctification. You aren't the wreck. You aren't broken. You are being transformed. You are changing. Here's the truth, though. It's just messier and grimier and takes way longer than anybody wants to be honest with you about. You know why? Because that doesn't sound sexy. (laughs) Fast, big, monumental life change. That's what everybody wants to sell you in the church. But Jesus transforms us slowly in small ways over a long period of time, step by step. And listen, when we're honest about that, when we're honest about this progression, then then we begin to believe the truth about us, like, like that we have been crucified with Christ and then we can run to him, not from him, when we feel those pangs of shame because he's working on us. And yeah, there's some, some rust still here because he's not gotten to that part yet. And he promises that he will fulfill and bring to completion all the work that he has started in you. So this is one of the things I learned on sabbatical, okay? Discipleship. Discipleship. I wanted big. I wanted fast. I wanted mountaintop, all at once things to happen in my heart during sabbatical. But rather what God did is he kindly reminded me that he works through slow, small, step-by-step processes in our lives. And he reminded me once again, even on I-25, driving way too fast through Colorado Springs, who he is and who I am. So I want to ask you this as we finish up. Do you know him? Do you know this God? Do you have any desire to submit your life to him? Remember the start of the sermon, like you've, you've got to want to be discipled. You've got to want this. So, so if you look at your life, is there any objective evidence that shows that you actually want to be discipled? If not, listen, I just want to invite you into this. Being a Christian is not just an, a mental ascent. It's submitting the whole of your life to who he is and letting him transform you. But it's slow and it's small and it's step by step. That's what I want to invite you into. It ain't going to happen overnight, but over time, he's on that restoration process and he's good at it. And then frankly, if you do already love him and know him, but maybe you just feel like, where are you? You're frustrated or you're worried or you're tired or you're ashamed. Maybe you've got one of those again things. Goodness gracious, maybe it happened today. This morning, again? I should know better by now. 
if you're there, I just want to remind you of Galatians 2.20. You are not who you used to be. You are not who you were before Christ saved you, before he rescued you. You may not be where you want to be yet, and that's just because you're still alive and he's working all things out for your good. So let me say this. You have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. May we go and live in that truth, in that reality, and chase after him and run with endurance the race set before us. Love you, church. Let's pray together. Father, this is it was one of those, those thoughts and ideas, discipleship, this long, slow journey that, that feels like it would make sense for you to do different. Like to me, Father, it would make sense for you to just change us all the way when you save us. It would just make sense for you to do all that work instantaneously so that we would stop struggling, we would stop wrestling, but but for whatever reason, in your good and perfect will, you know that progressive sanctification is better than immediate perfection. And so I pray that I would stop begrudging the things that you're trying to teach me, sometimes painfully so. I pray that I would see, that we would see our journey with you as intentionally slow so that we can run fast, as intentionally small so that we can grow big, and it's intentionally step by step so that one day all things would be made right in us and it would be all complete. Father, I, I pray this is encouraging to our hearts today. That when the whispers of the enemy start to tickle our ears, we wouldn't run from you in shame, but we would run to you as a loving father whose arms are open, who welcomes us as a son, as a daughter, not as a slave. Father, remind us of these truths in our heads and help us to marinate these things into our hearts. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.